I didn't mention, and I should have, that Superwoman is back with us today. Mary Jane Lackey, two weeks ago, had knee replacement surgery, and now she's with us today, and we're thankful for that. She, things have gone well. Uh, I couldn't have done it as well as she has, so good to have you, Mary Jane. Take your Bibles and look with me at chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 5 through 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Now, the writer of this book, as we have already seen and will see for weeks and months to come, has as his sole purpose to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. His focus is Christological. His focus is on Jesus. And he started out by saying, listen, he is the, he is the revelation. He is the ultimate revelation of God. He is, he is God incarnate. Everything we see in him is an expression of and a reflection of and a revelation of God. There is nothing greater. There is nothing else to learn that we will ever learn on this earth except what we see in Jesus Christ the only Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, God incarnate. He started by saying He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He's powerful because He upholds all things by the power of His Word. I mean, this one Jesus is a mighty, mighty God with flesh. It's a tough area to understand. I mean, it's a, it's a tough concept to grasp. It really is. How the eternal God, who is spirit, has now become man and dwelt among us. I mean, we run into all sorts of questions about that, and, and, and you do too, because we understand that that becomes a discussion of the whole Trinitarian nature, the triune nature of God. God is one God. That is clearly specified throughout all of Scripture. There is but one God. Back in the Old Testament, all the way back to Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And we are to worship Him in spirit and truth. We're to worship Him with all our heart, soul, might, strength, everything we have. There is but one God. But subsisting in that one God are three persons. And those three persons are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit subsisting within the very nature of the, uh, the oneness of God is the triunity of God. Now, just ponder that a while, and you'll go totally out of your mind because it, it doesn't make sense by human math. One plus one plus one equals three in mathematics. And if you go to school tomorrow and, and you're still in one plus ones, I would be if I were still in math in school, but if you're still in one plus ones plus ones and you put one plus one plus one equals one, you will fail. Although you would have been theologically correct in a very real sense of the word. But this is what the writer of Hebrews is grasping and, and, and trying to help us to grasp the greatness and the magnitude of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He wants us so to understand that we worship a living God. We worship a very real God. And we worship one who's, who dwells among us and has dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us, John said in John 1, so that we might see who God is and what God is like. Uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, once said this, and I think he was right. 
He said, whatever else is or is not true, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. Instead of having the mastery, he is mastered. Instead of ruling, he is enslaved. Instead of being characterized by strength, he's characterized by great weakness. Instead of being an ally of the Lord God, subject to him, the scriptures tell us that he is a rebel against God. Instead of being characterized by glory, he is characterized by shame. Man seeks his destiny by tyranny and cruelty. There is still something planted within the nature of man that leads him to want to rule. Now why do I say that in light of me saying that the writer of Hebrews is exalting Jesus. It's because in this verse, these verses this morning that he comes to, that Chesterson is referring to, he talks about the dignity of man. That there was a purpose for man. I had Todd read the 8th Psalm because there they, the psalmist says, Who is man? And today the, the, the writer of Hebrews quotes that psalm, Psalm 8, or at least part of it, in our text to say, you know, what is man? Who is man? What is the significance of man? I mean, if God is everything, if Jesus Christ is everything, and the angels are great and important because he's already said and already indicated that among a lot of the Jewish believers, the angels held a little bit too high of a position, but they are important. They are messengers of God. They are uh, agents of God. If the angels are great and God is really great, then where does that leave man? Well, Chesterson wrestles with that. And he says, you know, man is just not what he's intended to be because of the fall. Because sin has entered into the world and into our lives by virtue of the fall of Adam. Man is not what God intended. God intended for man to rule. God intended for man to, to come into the earth and, and subdue the earth and, and rule over the earth and to be a co-regent with him on this earth. We were to rule with benevolence and rule with glory and rule as the agents of God on this earth. He created us for thus. But because of the fall, because sin entered into the world, man became less than what he was intended to be. And that's one thing that Chesterton said is a certain matter. Man is not what he's meant to be. Listen to how the writer quotes this and then gives a bit of commentary on it himself. Verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come. And the world there is just the, the inhabited earth. It's, it's the word that's used there is not the word cosmos, which can be used in several different ways and is used in several different ways in scriptures. It's the word that literally means the inhabited earth. So, for, for he did not subject to angels the inhabited earth to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, I love that, he would not have been very good at Bible drills, I don't think, uh, if he were in our uh, culture, or earlier culture of Baptists. I mean, he, he doesn't say who, he doesn't say where, but he says, I remember somewhere somebody has testified in the scripture. Of course, it's David in Psalm 8. What is man? that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him you have made him for a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands you have put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him but we do see him 
who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor by the grace of God, that by the grace of God, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone or taste death for all. This is the word of God. He starts out by talking about God didn't put angels over the earth. He could have. He could have said, I'm going to let my angels go and rule, and I've created man, and, and men will be subject to the angels, subjected to the angels, and, and they will obey the angels, and the angels will rule with certainty and with clarity and with power, and nobody will refute them. Nobody will stand against them. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, he created man in which man was able to be uh, uh, the, the co-regent with God. And in the garden, if you remember in the garden of Eden, when, when God created Adam and Eve, that's where he first told him about this. He, he told him just as clear or clearer than what David does here. And if you, if you just listen to this, don't turn back with me. I've got it marked so I can find it quickly. But in Genesis chapter 1, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them this, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding a seed that on the surface of all the earth and every tree that has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it is so and was so. And God saw all that he made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Came down to the finality of creating man and woman in his image to be the imagio deo, the, the image bearers of God, that somehow we were to reflect who he is. Now Jesus Christ is obviously the perfect imagio deo. He is the perfect reflection of God. He is the perfect man that ever lived, the only one that ever lived. But we too bear the image of God because of his creative power. And, and God said, I have a purpose for you, and it's a royal purpose, and it's a glorious purpose, but in that purpose, you are to subdue the earth, control the earth, rule over the earth, but always under the submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Always acknowledging that while God created you who he created you, you are not above everything. You are not all in all. And yet because of selfishness and sin and the eating of the fruit that we won't go into this morning in detail, you know the story, Adam and Eve in the garden, eating the fruit that was forbidden, and so sin entered the world. And basically that was a selfish sin. That was selfishness. That was pride that said, I want to be like God. It's, it's okay that God created me as a co-regent. It's okay that God created me to, to rule and subdue the earth and, and be here in that capacity. But you know, that's not good enough. I want to be like him. I want to have all authority. I want to have all power. I want to have... I want, to, I want to be able to know the right from wrong in my own innate ability, not because God told me it was right or wrong. And so because of that, they ate of the fruit, thinking as Satan had tempted them and lied to them, that, hey, if you eat of this, you'll be like God. You'll be just like God. And all of a sudden, there was a corruption, not an obliteration, not a, not a complete removal of the image of God, 
because we still, every one of us, believer and unbeliever, bear the image of God in our very nature. We are the imago Deo of God by his grace and by his command. But in that, it was distorted. We no longer lived for the glory of God. We lived for the glory of ourselves. We no longer live so that we might honor and exalt the Lord. We now live for myself, for what I can get, for what I can store up for myself and have for myself. It's not about him now. It's about us. It's not about his glory. It's about our glory. It's not about us reaching and, and saying to the world, look and focus and, and, and acknowledge who he is. It's really about look at me and who I am. Maybe I'm good. Maybe I'm a, a religious person and, and I want to be acknowledged for that. Martin Luther used to say when talking about the fall, he said, our plight is a notus deo vindus dignus. You understand that, I know. It's a knot which needs God's help to unravel. And that's true. We had gotten ourselves in such a condition, such a predicament, that we had tied ourselves and our, our, our nature and our being into a knot that we could not of our own ability unravel. It would take God, God's help, God's power, God's grace to unravel it. And that's exactly what he did in Jesus Christ. It's exactly what he did in sending his son into the world. It's exactly what he did by saying, I will send him to taste death. I will send him to be the sacrifice and the substitute to stand in our place. The writer is concerned that we understand that we are to rule, we are to be with him, but that has to be restored. And I like the way he says in verses 8 and 9 there. Look, look at how he puts here two phrases. In verse 8 he said, But now we do not yet see all things subjected to us. Why, we are ruled over by everything you can imagine. We're ruled over by other people. We're ruled over by uh, nature. We're ruled over by creatures sometimes. I'm always fascinated. About once a month I'll read something in the news about a professor at, at Princeton called Peter Singer. He's my favorite pagan of all pagans because he just writes so seriously the most ridiculous things. And, and you know, he, he is a, he's an animal rights fanatic. He believes that animals should have the same rights that we do, and he's sort of the precursor of the guy who uh, was in the news not long ago who believed that our pets ought to have the rights to sue us if they weren't happy. And how that happens, I don't know. But we're in a mess. In a, we've got this knot so ravel that without God's help, we can't unravel it. We are in such a mess. Luther was absolutely right. But God said, I will help. And by my grace, I will do it. We do not yet see all things subjected to him, that is man. We do not see man serving in his proper role that I created him for because of rebellion. Because, of, as Chesterton said, instead of being an ally of the Lord God, subject to him, uh, and the scriptures tell us that we have rebelled against him, instead of being characterized by glory, we're characterized by shame. And everybody seeks their own power. 
You see that regularly. You see a search for power that is not godly and is not centered on righteousness at least every four years in our country, don't we? I mean, every election is really just a grasp for power by one side or the other. And one is no better than the other. They want the power. They want to rule. That is something that was placed in us by God. There is that nature in, in man that leads us to want to rule and have power, but it's a raw power that's not subjected to the authority of Christ. And so it always comes out undone. That's what Habakkuk said in his prophecy in the Old Testament. He said, you know, we go running after things, and because we don't pursue God, because we don't pursue his will and his purpose, then we make laws, but all laws come out unjust. They come out perverted. That's what Habakkuk said about it, and Habakkuk was telling the truth. We need to understand that this man, Jesus, we don't see ourselves ruling yet. We, we do not yet see but in verse 9, he says, but we do see him. We don't see all things subjected to us, but we do see him. That him is Jesus Christ, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, we could get into all sorts of discussions on what everyone means there. You know, it's, uh, th there are interpretive me uh, measures that have to be taken because we understand that that phrase, taste death, does not mean kind of took a sip for everybody. He just kind of tasted it. You know, it was, it was not a, a full-blown devouring of it or eating of it. It was just a taste that he did for everybody. So everybody could say, well, Jesus took a taste of death for me. It's not that at all. When he said he tasted death, it means he ate death. He experienced it completely. And I'm not just talking about that physical death. I'm talking about the experience of sinful death, having sins placed upon him. He who knew no sin becoming sin so that we who have no righteousness might become the very righteousness of God type of tasting of death. It was exchanging our sin for his righteousness. It was a, it was a powerful tasting of death that made a difference. he did that for all who believe. Now, there's a generic sense in which we understand Jesus is the Savior of the world, and, and there is a sense in which he is the Savior of the world without distinction. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's not just the Savior of, uh, of a few select people. He's the Savior of the world without distinction. Jew and Gentile, every nation, tongue, tribe and, uh, that, that is on the face of the earth is to hear the gospel. And John says in, John, in Revelation that God is calling out from among every tribe and language and nation. He's calling out from among them the, uh, the people to believe. And they come and they believe in Christ. And those are the ones for whom death has been tasted. Death has been experienced so that we don't have to taste it. Not spiritual death, not, not, not we'll have physical death. We just had some deaths in our, with family members of our church family. Yes, physical death will still come. But we have to understand that Christ has eaten of death. And when we believe in him, when our faith is in him, we do not have to taste that kind of death because we've been given his righteousness. James Denny wrote in his book, 
several years ago, uh, over 100 years ago now, on the atonement of Christ. And, and he wrote this in there as a, a recorded letter that he had run, once written to uh, Sir William Robertson Nicoll, a, a Scottish theologian himself. And he said this, I do not believe that the Christian religion, let alone the Christian church, can live unless we are sure of three things. A real being of God in Christ. The atoning death and the exaltation of Christ. He goes on to say, if Jesus was not in the real sense God manifest in the flesh, God wearing the homespun of our human nature, but, not on, but, but, only, but if he's only one more fallible man who has some kind of special anointing, if he's only one more fallible man like ourselves, guessing and groping after God, then we'd better erase the word gospel from our vocabulary and close our churches. That's what the writer of Hebrews is getting down to. Here, we are man. We have rebelled. We were created to, to rule with God, but we abdicated that in some way when we chose through our father Adam, uh, Adam to sin. And, and now we have to see who this Jesus is. Let me, let me give you a quote here. Tell me if you, have, if you know who said this. It's not Spurgeon, okay? Uh, said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice sins are forgiven, you re you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Could have been Spurgeon. Could have been Luther. Could have been Augustine could have been Bill Haynes but it wasn't was Christopher Hitchens and do you know who Christopher Hitchens is he's one of the new atheists he's one that wrote God is not great and he debates Christians all the time about the existence of God in this case he was being interviewed by a Unitarian minister and she had asked him or this was her question to him the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And then he said to her, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice sins are forgiven, you're really not any mean, in any meaningful sense a Christian. I love it when atheists see the bottom line. I just wish more Christians would. I, I, I read uh, yesterday in the Lexington Herald-Leader an article and I printed it out a while ago. Charlie reminded me of it a little bit ago and I, I meant to take it and bring it with me and I forgot to so I just went online and printed it out. It was in yesterday's Herald Leader and it said one in three Presbyterians think heaven has an open door policy. Now this is, granted this is the PC USA, not the PCA or the EPC. They have all these, you know, we have SBC and all those, they, these are acronyms. The Presbyterian Church in the USA, in America. 
Presbyterian Church in the USA. Their statement of faith says that God through Jesus Christ delivers followers from death to eternal life. But one in three members of the nation's largest Presbyterian denomination seem to believe that there's some wiggle room for non-Christians to get into heaven, according to a recent poll. They also poted, uh, poted, quoted, excuse me, They also quoted a 2005 survey by Baylor University that found 53% of adults polled who agreed with the statement that many religions lead to salvation. And, and only 19% said my religion is the one true faith that leads to salvation. In 2007, the Pew Forum of Religion and Public Life found that 70% of Americans with a religious affiliation believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. Another study that was done by Lifeway, Southern Baptist uh, study, asked the t or made the statement, if a person is sincerely seeking God, he or she can obtain eternal life through religions other than Christianity. 70% of those strongly disagreed with that statement. Excuse me, 75% did. But that mean, meant that 25% 25, 25 of people who hold, as they asked the question, evangelical beliefs strongly agreed with that statement. That it's not in Christ. Well, I think Hitchens is right. I rarely quote a, 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 an atheist as my authority. But I believe Hitchens is right. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you don't believe he is the Christ, if you don't believe he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice he has tasted death and made life in Christ a reality for those who believe if you don't believe that you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian Christianity is Christ eternal life is Christ I love the way Jesus said it in the in the in the high priestly prayer in John 17 he said by this will all men know you I pray, Father, that, that you are, I'm, I, can, I can quote that like I can say my own name, and now all of a sudden it's not coming like it's supposed to. So I'll do what I should do. Go to John 17, 1. You know this. Jesus spoke these things, lifted up his eyes, and said, you know, Father, my hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then in verse 3 he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life has no meaning apart from Christ. Eternal life has no reality apart from Jesus Christ. And to say with, uh, with the uh, Unitarians of the world and, and a large number, 33% of the PCUSAs of the world, that, well, you know, other ways to God are acceptable is to call Jesus Christ a liar to begin with because he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. It's also, to, as, as Denny said, it strips the word gospel of all its meaning. It strips the word gospel of all its reality, and we ought to erase it from our vocabulary, and we ought to just close our churches. You see, if, if, if God does indeed have an open-door policy, and there's one sense I realize he does, it's open to all who believe, all who come, 
Jesus said, any who come to me, I will not cast out. I'll not turn away. If you believe on my name, you shall be saved. If you want me, you get me. I mean, that's the, that's the truth of the scripture. There's an open door policy. But the door that is open is Jesus Christ. You understand that? There are no other doors. Can't climb through windows. Can't find exceptions. You can't find, as the Presbyterian or the writer of this article said, you can't find some wiggle room to get in apart from Christ. That's what the author to Hebrews is wanting us to see. He's it. He's tasted the death that we deserve so that we don't have to. He's eaten of that horror. He has entered into that horror so that you and I don't have to have that horror, so that we can live. And, and he brings us together as a body to celebrate that together and rejoice in that together, but not just that. To share it with a world that's blinded by the darkness. To share it with a world that's blinded by sin. You know, I don't know what you consider the absolute worst word in the human vocabulary to be maybe you think it's hate murder whatever it might be to you I think all of those really fall under what I consider the most tragic word in all of human language and that word is sin and that's what separates man from his creator that's what separates man from the destiny for which he was created. Sin is what separates man from his God. And there's only one way that sin can be dealt with. There's only one way that sin can be not just forgiven, but can be replaced with righteousness. And that is by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ. To know that he's tasted death on your behalf. To know that he's given life. To know that he is the Messiah, the Christ. The writer says, we see him. We see him, and he was made for a little while lower than the angels. That is, he was made like us. That he might show us. He might show us his love, his compassion, his power, and his glory. I can't wait to get into verse 10 next week. So I'm going to read it right now. For it was, I'm not going to preach on it, just going to read it. This is my closing thought. Actually, verses 10 and 11, maybe 12. For it was fitting for him. For whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. You know who those many sons to glory are? That's you and me. But I'm not going to preach on that. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified 
are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. In these verses, verses 5 through 9, we see Jesus almost as a trailblazer. We see him as one who's opening up new, new lands, new territory, territory that's never been understood until he came. Next week, we're going to see him much more than that as, as being the author of our salvation and as being the sanctifier, the one who brings us into the family of Almighty God. He brings us in. What a, what a glorious picture that is. He brings us into the family by his grace because he has left nothing, nothing uncared for, nothing undealt with. But by the grace of God, he has tasted death for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge to you, O Lord, that Luther was right when he said that our plight is notus deo vendis dignus. A mess that we've got to have your help to unravel. And your help is your grace. Your help is your son. Your help is new life in him. Restore us, O Lord, to who and what you called us to be. Give us a desire, O Lord, not for raw power, but a desire, O Lord, is your church to experience your power. That is a benevolent power. That is a gracious power. That is a power to see lives changed. Father, do your work in your way in our church and in our lives. Father, we thank you. Lord, I pray for men and women here this morning that don't know you. I pray your Holy Spirit will call them to Christ, will open their eyes to see their sin and their need for a Savior, and open their hearts to believe. Jesus Christ is that Savior. Father, we pray now that you would lead others who you'd have to plant their life in ministry in this place to be obedient to that. Father, we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.